0: Hello and welcome to another program of Bible study here on Search for Truth. I'm your host John and your Bible teacher Brian's here too. This week Brian's talk is the third in this series about great spiritual movements and he looks today at how the Spirit moved the child in the womb which is referring to Luke's Gospel chapter 1 and verse 35. So if you've a Bible handy you might find it helpful So, here's Brian now.
1: Thanks, John. It's remarkable that we're not told that Mary, the mother of our Lord, was full of the Holy Spirit. And yet this seems to be all the more honorable a distinction for her, compared with Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Elizabeth, we are told, was filled with the Spirit. But although we surely can't have any doubts that Mary was under the influence of the Spirit of God, her resulting actions and words Appear to be more a personal reflection, connected with her own faith and life with the Lord, bound up with her habit of communing with God. Her song is her response to God, rather than a revelation on his part, as Elizabeth's was. Mary then stays three months with the woman whom God has selected to be the mother of John the Baptist, God's voice in the desert. Luke in his Gospel tells us these two instruments of grace – each selected for God's supreme purpose, enjoy fellowship together, unknown to the world. As little known to the world as were these poor women, God is there at work in their lives, accomplishing what angels desire to fathom or figure out. Hidden in the hill country, these two women shared with each other how God was using them. Their hearts, visited by God, touched by his grace, respond to each other, and to God. Their exchanges recognise God's hand and greatness and submit to his will. We are surely favoured in being admitted into this scene from which the world was excluded by its unbelief and alienation from God. Soon, Mary returns to follow humbly her own calling to fulfil the purposes of God. In due course, the Saviour of the world is born, He was both simultaneously upheld as an infant by Mary, while upholding the entire universe himself. As we reflect for a moment on that tiny infant form, we realise that God's greatest purposes sometimes have the smallest physical manifestations. And that's the point I particularly want to explore today that God's greatest purposes sometimes have the smallest physical manifestations. To take another example of this, compare God's small portable residence on earth in the time of Moses. It's known as the tabernacle. Compare and contrast it over against the gigantic, mind-blowingly huge scale of the known universe. Scientists have a guesstimate of there being 100,000 million stars in each galaxy and there being also 100,000 million galaxies or thereabouts. And yet it's with a remarkable economy of words that the formation of the stars is described in the Bible. It's all dismissed in a mere two words in Genesis chapter 1. But now contrast the 15 entire chapters in the book of Exodus alone which are absorbed with the minute details of that special tent and its furnishings that was God's dwelling place among his chosen people, that tent being the tabernacle, as we've said. And that's despite the fact that the tent and its enclosure was not so dissimilar in size to that of a modern football or soccer pitch. If these examples tell us anything, it must be this, that God's not impressed with physical size in the way that we are, Churches of God today that we may be personally acquainted with could well be small, but don't be focused on signs or depressed by lack of numbers. Clovis Chapel, a minister from over a century ago, used to tell the story of two paddle boats. They left Memphis about the same time and were both travelling down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. As they sailed side by side, sailors on one boat made a few remarks about what they saw as the slow progress of the other boat. Soon challenges were made and a race had begun. Competition became fierce as the two boats roared through the deep south. One boat began falling behind as it ran out of fuel. There had been plenty of coal for the trip, but not enough for a race. As the boat dropped back, an enterprising sailor took some of the ship's cargo and started using it as fuel. When the sailors saw that supplies burned almost as well as the coal, they fueled their boat with the material they'd been given to transport from Memphis to New Orleans, which also lightened their load, of course, and so they ended up winning the race, but only through burning their cargo. God has entrusted his cargo to us by cargo. I mean Bible truth, if you'll permit me to refer to it that way. Our job is to do our part in seeing that this cargo reaches its destination. We hear a lot today about programs to help churches grow faster. But when the church program takes priority over truth, the testimony of the Lord suffers. That's not an appropriate go-faster strategy. If some numerically larger churches have dispensed with even a little of the cargo of truth God has given to us, who would dare to call that success? Then there's the biggest beautiful way of thinking. 25% of churchgoers in the United Kingdom are said to attend a congregation that's over 400 strong. Now, a whole lot of things could motivate that trend. Perhaps it's a retreat into the comfort zone of the religious ghetto, or it could be a desire for anonymity, or a means of avoiding having to take personal responsibility. After a busy week at work, it might be tempting to want to just chill out at church. Perhaps the desire to be associated with something big is driven by a wrong view of success. The God of the Bible is a God who specialises in minorities and who works through remnants. The Bible's measure of authenticity is not numerical. The mega-church phenomenon wasn't there. At the beginning of Christianity. The number of disciples in Jerusalem certainly did quickly grow into thousands, but the internal evidence of the Bible is that they met in smaller units or companies all belonging to the one Church of God at Jerusalem. Which brings us back to the original mould or pattern of Christianity and the keeping of God's cargo of truth intact. When churches of God reformed in the late 19th century Only 10% of their parent association participated, and 60% of those newly re-established churches were to be found in Scotland. The number of churches today which belong to that fellowship which emerged again over 125 years ago, while not vastly greater than the number in those early days, is now made up of churches that are far more globally dispersed, which in itself is a good response to the Great Commission. To reach out into the whole world was the master's directive, but numerical size was never a specified objective. In fact, as we've seen from the earlier examples given, that some of God's greatest purposes had small physical manifestations. When you track the Bible's record of movements that were of God by design or groups of people whose actions God explicitly endorsed, Perhaps a common, if not invariable, feature is their smallness. Only 42,000 of God's people returned from Babylon to rebuild for God at the site of the previously destroyed Jerusalem temple. The majority remained in what may have become their comfort zone. And it seems that the city of Bethlehem was singled out in the time of Boaz and Ruth as being home to faithful folk in contrast to the general texture of the time. Might we not also conclude from the Bible text of Acts chapter 27 and the ending of Romans chapter 15 that the outworking of the will of God, while not always large in scale as we've been saying, is also not always plain sailing for us? Was Paul correct in thinking God wanted him to head first to Jerusalem and then onwards to Rome at the heart of the empire? We need have no doubts about that. But now think of Acts chapter 27, the story of Paul's epic and hazardous adventure on the high sea. Why is this shared in such graphic detail? It's equally important to interpret this correctly. Tempting as it is to make applications involving salvation, anchors, harbours, and not making shipwreck of our faith, that's not why God has set it out in such detail in the scripture. That's not the exposition of the narrative. It's there simply to mean what it says. And is it not there to speak to our discouragement today by showing that the gospel's greatest servant, while devotedly giving his all, in full accord with the will of God, wasn't guaranteed plain sailing in this life? Paul has a word from the Lord that he'll witness at Rome, and yet here he is, navigating with great difficulty the high seas as he heads to Rome, Even being in the current of God's will doesn't stop him from being exposed to the perilous currents of the high seas. Through all that epic, storm-tossed journey, Paul had God's word. So whatever literal or metaphorical storms we battle through, whatever the difficulties and disappointments of the way, yes, even numerical decline and church closure, here's what these things don't mean. It doesn't mean you've got it wrong. It doesn't mean that you're in the wrong place after all, nor does it mean that you've misread God's plan for you. Arriving at his destination eventually, Paul finds himself imprisoned at Rome. By the time he writes his second letter to Timothy, he's counting down the days, ruefully reflecting on a blanket declension amongst the churches in Asia. So he'd experience danger and, He'd experienced declining numbers, but Paul was now at Rome to defend the truth of the gospel, just where God wanted him to be and to do. He arrived with all of the cargo intact. And there in the dark dungeon at Rome, in a confined space with a bleak prospect, and yet it's all lit up with the glorious anticipation of his safe arrival in the heavenly kingdom. Faithfulness, as we say, is often associated with smallness in the Bible, as shown by the days of the judges and in the days of the exiles and in the feeding glimpse we're permitted of the New Testament churches of God. But that's no excuse to have regrets or even to think small. Paul encouraged the captain, the sailors and the soldiers in their every endeavour to keep the ship afloat. So press on and preserve the cargo until we arrive at last at our final destination.
0: Uh, Now I remind you that our current book entitled Great Spiritual Movements contains all the transcripts of the nine talks in the series and uh, you can get it on request and if you'd like a copy just write in by post or email. I'll give you the details in a moment if you've pen and paper to hand but uh, the talk you've heard today is also available to download via the internet and you can do it in audio or text format. But to obtain the book, simply ask for Great Spiritual Movements, and you can do this by email or by post. And here is our address: Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN4 8DY, UK. Our email address is sft@churchesofgod.info. We've almost reached the end of today's program. And it's been great to have your company. We really appreciate your interest in these Bible talks, and I hope you'll join us next week to hear about how the Spirit moved in our hearts, which is referred to in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. But until then, it's very best wishes from Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David, our singers, and me, John. So cheerio, and may God richly bless you. Blind we um...